Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by listening in, and we're grateful for you. Um, Before we begin, I just want to encourage you to not let this podcast replace the local church in your life. God has designed it so that we are to join a local church and serve that body of believers and be shepherded by the pastor of that church. And that's something no podcast can give you. And so if you're not involved in a local church, let me encourage you to find one as soon as possible. Enjoy our podcast. Open your Bibles to John chapter 20. Two more weeks left in the Gospel of John as we've been making our way through it. We come today to the last part of chapter 20. There was a well-known evangelist. He was from Canada. He came to faith in Jesus in 1936 and became an evangelist the same year. He became good friends with another evangelist, and the two of them did an evangelistic tour of Europe together in 1946. When they returned, many people thought this guy would go on to become the most successful evangelist in history. However, in 1948, two years later, this man began to doubt his faith. He started to raise a lot of questions that he could not answer, the chief question being, if God is good, why is there suffering, death, and evil in the world? He wrestled with that question for a long time. And eventually this man departed from the Christian faith, never to return. In 1996, he wrote a book titled Farewell to God, telling his story of the departure from the faith. That man's name was Charles Templeton. Think to yourself, are you familiar with that name? Are you familiar with the other evangelist name, a guy named Billy Graham? Templeton and Graham um, traveled together. They did ministry together. They preached together. Um, he, he, he had a, Templeton had a lot of discussions with Graham about this question, why is there suffering and evil if God is good? And it resulted in Billy Graham questioning his own faith. But Billy Graham did not depart from the faith like Templeton did. Templeton was best friends with Billy Graham, but questions that he could not answer led to him leaving the faith. You know, I think everybody doubts God at some point. Um, they, they doubt him in different ways. We're going to talk about a few of those in a minute, but, but I think everyone struggles with that at some point, maybe multiple times in your life. Um, we come to the most famous incident of doubt in John, maybe in the entire Bible. It's doubting Thomas. Thomas is going to serve as a picture for us to understand how to deal with our own doubts when they come. And so let's read John 20, 24 through the end of the chapter. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciple told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. 
Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Last week we did chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. Jesus appeared the night of Easter to the disciples, but Thomas wasn't there. Don't know where he was. Maybe he was out picking up milk at the Dollar General. I don't know, but he wasn't there. The other ten were. They saw Jesus. They, they, they knew him to be resurrected. Thomas was not there. And he gets back that night. Jesus has left them. He gets back to the upper room, and the disciples all have a different demeanor than when he left. They were downcast and sad when he left. Now they are uh, alive. It's like they've burst alive from something that's happened to them. And they tell him, they tell Thomas, hey, we've seen the Lord. He's alive. What Mary Magdalene said is true. They're excited. But Thomas won't believe. He won't believe. Thomas gets a bad rap for being called Doubting Thomas. This is really the only instance in all the Bible when Thomas doubts. Um, He's being told that a man has come out of the grave. I think we can give him a little grace for not believing that immediately. He's certainly a pessimist. If you read John, um, Jesus is going to go back to um, heal Lazarus after he's just left that area where they were trying to kill him. And Thomas says, uh, let's go and we'll die with him. So he certainly always looks at the glass half empty. But um, Peter doubts way more than Thomas does. But Thomas is the one that's associated with doubt. Thomas doubts the Lord and he makes a demand of what he will need to believe. If I'm going to believe that Jesus rose from the dead... I've got to see the marks in his hands and the gash in his side, and I've got to put my hand in those things. Like, that's the only way I'm going to believe. He doubts the Lord. We doubt the Lord regularly. We doubt the Lord regularly. Let's get real honest with the way we doubt the Lord. I was thinking through, as I was preparing all the ways that Christians doubt the Lord, everything that could be a doubt, and everything I could think of falls into four categories four categories. Number one, we doubt God's existence. Does he really even exist or are we just wasting our time? What if we die one day and we don't wake up in heaven? We're just asleep forever. Some people comfort themselves thinking about that and saying, well, at least I've lived a good moral life. But according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, no, if, if God isn't real, if Jesus isn't risen and we've lived our whole life devoted to him, we are the most pathetic people on the planet. He says, look, if God isn't real, we should eat, drink, be merry, and live it up because tomorrow we die, and that's it. We're tempted to think, I can't see God, and I've never really seen anything miraculous in my life. Maybe God isn't real. Hasn't science proved God doesn't exist? Maybe like Templeton, you think, if God really existed, there wouldn't be cancer. There wouldn't be violence. There wouldn't be terrorism. There wouldn't be all the terrible things that we see in the world today. Where is he? Why doesn't he do something? But maybe you're not willing to say there's no God. There's too much evidence for that. You've seen a sunset before. So you have to doubt something else. So secondly, we doubt God's goodness. We doubt his goodness. A lot of people leave the Christian faith when they have something bad happen to them. Some some kind of tragedy hits them. They think, why would God let this happen to me? He's not good. 
Why would God let me get cancer? Why would God let my loved one die before their time? Why would God not let me get that job that I wanted so badly? Why would God let my spouse walk out? Why would God let my kids grow up and just go off the rails and, and, and live in just promiscuity and, and terrible life? Why would he let that happen? God is not good. Or maybe he is good, but you, you, you can't doubt that he's good. Maybe you, you rather doubt he's, he's not powerful. Thirdly, we doubt God's power. We doubt his power. Perhaps you don't want to give up the idea that God is good all the time, so you just have to assume he's not in control. He's not in control. Maybe he wants to do something about your circumstances, but he can't. He's not powerful enough. He's not in control. Maybe, um, maybe the deists are right. Deism is a belief that God... Um, basically created the world and stepped back from it, and he doesn't do anything with it. He spun it like a spinning top, and he's just waiting for that thing to, to fall over and not spin anymore. Uh, maybe they're right. Maybe God's just stepped back from the world, and he's not involved in it. But then for you, 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 you can't really think God can't, cannot be powerful. You see creation. You've seen him do stuff in your life. Um, you, you can't doubt that he's powerful. So you have to doubt one more thing. Number four, we doubt God's love. Perhaps you doubt God's love. You know, he, you know he exists. He has all power, and he has to be good. Any other God wouldn't be God who doesn't exist, have all power, and be good. That, that, that wouldn't be the case. He wouldn't be God anymore. Maybe he just doesn't love you. Maybe you've done something to lose his love from your life. Maybe, you've not, maybe you're not lovable at all. Maybe he is, he's got bigger things to worry about than tiny you. You're doubting all these things. You don't know what to do. It shakes up your whole world. That's where Thomas is. That's not only where Thomas is, that's where he stays for eight days. Eight days. Saturday a week ago to now. That's how long he has to sit in that. He, he sits in it for that long. Monday passes. He's still there. Tuesday passes. He's still there. Wednesday Thursday, they, they, they keep passing, and he can't shake this. And all the other disciples are overjoyed. They, he feels like an outsider. You ever had friends that had an inside joke, and you didn't know what it was, and, and you, you feel like you don't even understand what they're talking about? That's how he feels. He's like on the outside. Like, like I don't know what y'all what, what, what have um, experienced, but I haven't gotten it, and, and I'm on the outside. He doesn't know where his life goes from here. Everything he ever knew was based on Jesus. And his world has come crashing down. Is God going to answer his doubts? Then one night, eight days later, the 11 disciples are all gathered together. They're all there in that upper room. And the same thing happens that happened last week in, in last week's text. Um, the doors are locked and Jesus just appears. And he says the same thing. Verse 26, peace be with you. Peace be with you. And then Jesus gives Thomas exactly what he asked for. Hey, here's the wounds. Come on, put your finger in them. C come up here. Come do it. Come on, Thomas. I'm here. I I'm here. But Thomas doesn't do it. Thomas doesn't come up and put his fingers in them. Why? He doesn't need to. It's all clear. It it's all clear. 
Jesus really is alive. He really is risen. And Thomas, even though he's called the doubter, he gets something that, that, that nobody else in the Gospel of John gets. He makes the biggest confession of who Jesus is in the entire book. He sees the wounds and he says, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. He cries out that Jesus is God in the flesh. God become man. Not just that, he's Lord. He's who Thomas is going to submit his entire life to. He's not just God off in heaven. No, he's Lord that I'm going to follow for the rest of my days. Jesus gives Thomas exactly what he needs for his doubts to be answered. So maybe you hear that and you think, so are you telling me God's when I doubt, God will give me exactly what I need to overcome my doubts? Well, hopefully, but, but not always. He may give you exactly what you're looking for. He may not. Notice what he says to Thomas right after all this happens. Verse 29. Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen. That is, there are some people who are going to believe without seeing. That there, there are some people who believe as Thomas has, that they get exactly what they ask of Jesus. There's others who don't, and those people are more blessed for believing when they didn't get to see. So what do you do? What do you do if God doesn't answer your doubts exactly as you want? I mean, you lay out the stipulations, Lord, I need this, 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 and this, or I'm going to stop believing in you. And God doesn't give you those things. What, what do you do when that happens? What do you do? What do you do if you ask to see the wounds and he doesn't appear and show them to you? What do you do if you're one of those people who don't get to see? Verse 30 and 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. They're not written in this book, but these are all written so that you may believe, that, that you may believe. This is called the purpose statement of John. It's, it's John telling the reader why he wrote this. Why did he write this the last 20 chapters? Um, some, some people like to say this is the end of the book and 21 was added on by somebody else. I don't think that's the case. Um, I think John wrote because of what you see at the end of John 21. But, um, but, but this is the purpose statement that John makes. This is why he wrote he wrote all these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you'll have life in his name. You, you will have life. He wants you to believe and have life. When you're saved, he wants you to believe and be saved and have life, but also every day. We have to believe in Jesus anew every single day of our lives. We have to choose to believe in Jesus rather than something else because there's so many things out there that want to draw us away from him. Notice the word signs, verse 30. Jesus did many other signs. What's that word doing there? We haven't seen that word in John since chapter 12, verse 37. We saw it a lot in John before this, but John 12, 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him in him. That the word sign was all over chapters 1 through 12, but it's been absent ever since until right here. 
the way John's book is laid out, chapters 1 through 12, is called the book of signs. Chapters 12, 13 through 21 is called the book of glory. 1 through 12 is all about the signs Jesus performed. 13 through 21 is all about his death and resurrection. And so that's how it's broken up. Why does he all of a sudden bring up signs again when that was chapters 1 through 12? Why does he call back to that? Because what has just happened is the pinnacle of all the signs. It's the grand climax. It's the epic showdown. It's everything those signs have been pointing to. Those seven miracles Jesus performed in chapters 1 through 12 were, were there. Now you have the ultimate sign, his resurrection, his rising from the dead. You don't know it, but Jesus gave Thomas exactly what you need. He gave Thomas exactly what you need. Are you doubting God's existence? Look at the wounds. I don't have to give you a philosophical or a scientific argument to prove that God exists. I just have to point to the empty tomb. If Jesus is risen, there is a God. Because apart from something divine, dead bodies don't rise from the grave days after dying. It doesn't happen. You, you want to know if God exists? Look at the empty tomb and look at the wounds. Are you doubting God's goodness? Look at the wounds. See the risen Savior who has risen to overcome your biggest enemy, your biggest adversary, the devil and your sin, the grave. He has conquered your greatest problem. So you still have some smaller problems here on earth, and some of those are even, even seem like bigger, smaller problems, but nothing as big as the grave, your sin, and death. It's all been defeated. He has risen to overcome all of these things. See how good he is. See how good he is. Are you doubting God's power? Look at the wounds. Look at the wounds. Jesus rose from the dead. He has died, as we all will, and he has risen. Show me a power in the world greater than that. You're not going to find it in some ruler here on earth. You're not going to find it in a piece of technology. You're not going to find it in money. You're not going to find it if you took all the energy from a star in the universe and, and, and balled it up. Like, there's still not enough power to do what Jesus did. No matter how much power you have on earth, you will die. And Jesus rises from the dead, defeating all of that. Defeating all of that. He has all power and authority. Are you doubting God's love? You doubting his love? Look at the wounds. Look at the wounds. He died and rose for you because he loves you. Because he loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish. Will not perish. If he's willing to die for you and rise for you, do you really think you're going to do something to be unlovable or lose his love? How fickle of a God do you think he is? He burst out of the tomb to show you the immeasurable riches of his love forever sealed by his blood. He loves you. Stop doubting it. He loves you. Remember, we, we mentioned this last week, Re Revelation chapter 5. One of the greatest scenes in the Bible. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes. And then just a few steps down, verse 9, worthy I'm sorry, that's the wrong one. Verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It's a lamb standing 
but it looks like it's been slain. It's standing alive, but it's covered in blood like it's been sacrificed. Jesus is going to have these wounds for all eternity. He's, he's going to have the body that he wore here on earth glorified in heaven, and it's still going to have the marks in the hands and the mark in the side and the marks on his feet. Why? So you don't have to have any scars like he does. He takes scars so that you don't have to. They are there so that you can continually look to them. These wounds are meant to give you every reason to believe in him. He's conquered the grave for you. What will he not do for you? Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Not just sort of give us all things, not just maybe give us all things, graciously give us all things. Pour it out in abundance. Remember all the signs of John. Jesus did many other signs, but he did signs that John has talked about. Remember all of them. Number one, Jesus turned water into wine in John. That is, he can change the laws of physics for you if he wants to. He can do that. He, he, chapter four, he healed the, the Roman centurion's son, and he was like 20 miles away from the kid, and he just said, go on, he's good. Jesus can answer you from miles away. Distance does not prevent him from coming to you. Then he healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. He, that, that man had been lame for over 30 years, 38, I believe it was. He can handle problems that you've had for over 30 years. Come to him. He can cleanse you of problems that you've had your entire life. He can do that. He, he feeds the 5,000 in chapter 6 with, with, two, with five loaves and two fish. Um, that is, he's not limited by the small amount of resources that you have. He's not. He walked on water. That is, not even the ocean can stop him from coming to you. He will be there. He healed the blind man. He, he can open up blind eyes. Even the most impossible issues can be resolved by his power. And spiritually speaking, he can open the blind eyes of your lost loved ones. He can do that. Raising Lazarus from the dead, the grave itself cannot stop him. In fact, he proved that more than once. The ultimate sign, he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. He's the sovereign king reigning in glory forever. He's reigning in glory forever. Nothing is too hard for him. He is infinitely good. He is infinitely powerful. He is infinitely loving, and he's completely worthy of being trusted, completely worthy of your life. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Romans 11, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. So we see all of this and we can but cry out, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. You see verse tw chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus did many other signs which are not written in this book. Now jump down to chapter 21, verse 25, the final verse of the book. We'll hit on this more next week. But um, Now there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That Every book you've ever seen in your life in your school library, in the Tiff County Library, if you've ever been in my office, like a thousand over there, maybe more, I don't know, I've never counted them, but 
You take all those books, you, you put them together, still doesn't cover all the things Jesus did. It still doesn't cover it all. You couldn't contain it in the Library of Congress if, if you took everything he ever did and wrote it down together. You cannot contain all that he has done ever since all of this either. Since the, the end of John's gospel, 2,000 years of history, you could not contain the things that he's done. So what do you do? I asked the question earlier. What do you do if, if you're one of those who, who, who doesn't get to see? Verse 29, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What do you do if you're one of those people? What do you do if you want to see the wounds, but you can't, you, you don't get to see them? What, what, what do you do? You believe in him anyway. You believe in him anyway. He's given you ample signs to believe. That's why we so often doubt. We close off our view of what God has done in the past we only think of this moment and we let it define God. We don't think about all the things he's done in the past. We think about right now, this very second, and we let that be our definition of God. We close off that view. We forget all that he's done before. We forget all that he's done throughout history, and we think only of that moment. That's why we doubt. He has given us innumerable signs. You couldn't contain them all in books if you wrote them down. He wants us to believe to believe. The word believe appears 98 times in the Gospel of John because that's what Jesus wants for you to believe. You need to believe in him for the first time if you don't know him. If you're saved you, and you do know him, you must believe in him anew. The, the Gospel of Luke, Jesus will say you've got to take up your cross daily. That is, every day you get out of bed, you've got to throw that cross on your shoulder again and keep following him. And that's the expression of your belief. You've got to do that anew every single day. You must believe in him to have eternal life. And every day of your life, you must believe in him. Thomas has been living eight days in the darkness of doubt. And the moment he sees Jesus, life erupts from him, like light blazing out from the sun. Suddenly, all those, all those conversations that the other ten disciples have been having around him all week, it all makes sense, and he's a part of the conversation now. He knows. Believe in him, and you will have life too. Thomas did. Billy Graham did. And you will. If you're greatly struggling with doubt, come talk to me. That's why I exist. I'm here to shepherd your soul. C come talk to me. There are answers to your doubt. There's help for you. may not be exactly what you're looking for, but Jesus has his nailed, scarred hands outstretched for you to see that he can be trusted. He can be trusted. So will you trust him? Pray with me. Father, I come to you, and what greater expression of your existence, your goodness, your power, and your love could we see than the resurrection from the dead? Conquers all of our fears, conquers all of our doubts, shows Jesus in all of his glory and in all of his beauty. Lord, give us fresh eyes for that glory and that beauty. May we not look away from him, for he is beautiful. Lord, I pray for any of us if we're struggling with doubt or when we will one day struggle with doubt, because we will. 
Lord, I pray for us that we will look to the, to the, to, to the wounds, to the empty tomb. That you've provided um, the, the nail in the coffin for us to not have to um, live in doubt. You, you have provided us with um, complete, um, a, a complete way to, to see past our doubts and see you in all of your beauty. So help us look to that when doubt comes, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you believe? Do you believe in such a way that you cry out, my Lord and my God? Do you believe? If you've never come to know Jesus, I want to talk to you about that at the front. If you have and you're doubting or you're struggling, come pray at the altar. Come talk to me or just stand there and sing the glorious truths that we're going to sing. Um, we're going to do the same song this week that we did last week for invitation, the nail-scarred hand, because it applies to both stories. So the nail-scarred hand, Caleb, I don't know what number that is. Um, it is 513. We've got it written down.